My name is Stuart Parker, and this is my show, Cocktail Hour. You are listening to the final five episodes of Cocktail Hour with Stuart Parker. Our final guest, Don Todd, deserves five episodes to himself. Over the course of three weeks in November of 2022, Don and I enjoyed some sour mash Tennessee whiskey, good old Jack Daniels, as Don talked about his long and extraordinary life, uh, which began in uh, rural Arkansas in uh, 1930. And... uh, will take us through some momentous events and important people in uh, world history that Don encountered. Especially important is Don's time on the blacklist, the Red Scare blacklist of the 1950s. He brings many insights and much information that can benefit those of us in our current cultural moment. So, please enjoy the next of the Don Todd interviews that will wrap up Cocktail Hour and leave us in the position of launching a new podcast this spring, uh, about which you'll hear more later. But for now... Pour yourself a Jack Daniels and enjoy the wisdom and accumulated knowledge of Don Todd. So anyway, uh, back to the communist interrogation. Uh, in yeah. 51. Oh yeah. So I got called up. So they had a hearing, sort of like a trial, and um, and uh, I was. Uh, they were sitting up on a raised seating up above, looking down on me. You know, psychologically, it's very you know. A uh, good way of making a person really feeling helpless and so on. But I, anyway, they were asking about my 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 communist affiliations, and I was dodging every question. And 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 uh, you know, I didn't I didn't admit to actual membership, but I, I was a member of the party, but same as but and high school too. But uh, but I did, I never actually admitted it. But I I would. Dodge, uh, 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 dodge, trying to dodge a question. Uh, there was an officer. There were about, I think, something like eight or nine officers in a big row of, uh, and that's this hearing. Right, and, sort of dressed, sort of presenting themselves like the Nuremberg judges. Or yes, something. that's right, like that, and uh, and so, so uh, at one point, well. I had, uh, I, I had married, my, my girlfriend from high school had come out to California, Los Angeles, and we had married. We had an apartment in, in Los Angeles, and uh, I would go into Los Angeles every weekend, see, to be with her. And we were pretty poor, and we, but we had some friends named Blau, uh, uh, who uh, had changed their name to Blue, uh, and they had a TV shop where they sold TVs or where they repaired second-hand TVs, and they gave us a TV 
because they thought we were just too benighted without a TV. <laughs> so we used to, so I used we used to watch Perry Mason every weekend. And at some point in the in the in the show, Mason Mason would object to whatever the prosecutor was saying, and and he would say that, that is, uh, you know, remark was uh, uh, how how the formula go. Uh, uh, One of them is irrelevant. Irrelevant, immaterial, and incompetent. <laughs> the three eyes. The three eyes. Irrelevant, immaterial, and incompetent. So this officer uh, on the trial thing. Uh, bent over and, and he said, it's hard to imitate this, it just seems almost unbelievable. But anyway, he, he leaned over and, and, and he said, are you a Jew? <laughs> and I said, that question is irrelevant, immaterial, and incompetent, and I will not answer it. And he said, I thought so. Well, anyway, they found me guilty. They didn't give you a dishonorable discharge, but they gave me a, a nice big Gothic letters, beautifully carved, printed, and everything. Undesirable. <laughs> Undesirable. And they, at first, they wanted to put me on a train and send me back to St. Louis, where I'd been inducted. But I, I convinced them, since I had my wife in St. Louis, that it'd be a lot cheaper for them just to send me to, back to Los Angeles. And so, so they, they did. They put me on a bus in Barstow and sent me to Los Angeles. And they took all my money from me, and they, even though they owed me a month's pay, they refused to pay it. And, and, uh, and I got into Los Angeles, I had three cents in my pocket. And for the one and only time in my life that I ever stood on, on, a, on a street and begged for money, I begged for a nickel for a call so I could call Joanne to come and get me at the bus station there. So uh, she did. Um, and. Then the next day, I took I, I took my desire, undesirable discharge. I went down to the ACLU office in uh, uh, Los Angeles. So I, I don't know who recommended that I go to the ACLU, but at any rate, I I did, and they took it. And they said they had lots, thousands and thousands of other cases all over the country of young men who had been uh, treated that way in the army, and and I was in the Marines various military services that were being thrown out with bad discharges. Uh, and so they agreed to take it. So, so the first thing they needed was a copy of the transcript of the hearing. In those days, there was not a United Air, uh, Armed Force. There was a uh, Secretary of the Army, Secretary of the Navy, Secretary of the Air Force. And the Marines were under the Navy, so they, they wrote to the Secretary of the First of all, they wrote to the Commandant of the Marine Corps and asked uh, for a copy of the transcript so that they could appeal the, uh, the hearing, the decision. And the Commandant of the Marine Corps wrote back and said that that uh, transcript has been classified as uh, a secret and because Mr. Todd is a, is a uh, there's a word, special word they used, which meant, uh, you know, I was subversive of some kind. I wasn't entitled to have uh, the copy of the transcript. That, that's, it was very Kafkaesque, very Kafkaesque, you know. Uh, I, I went through a similar process when I lost my last radio station gig. Yeah. I, um, I was notified that a complaint had been made, uh -huh. but 
Um, I wasn't allowed to know who the complainant was or what the complaint was. <laughs> there was then a process where yeah. they adjudicated the complaint where I was not allowed to appear. Oh, Jesus. And so then, the, so the first time I spoke to the people was when they had their decision and they told me that they were removing me as a host uh, from the uh, from the lineup, but they um, they couldn't tell me why. That's, yeah, so yeah, it was... crazy, a nightmarish. Yeah. Know. Anyway, I was uh, so since the commandant of the Marine Corps wouldn't wouldn't uh, wouldn't uh, send a transcript, the ACLU then wrote to the Secretary of the Navy, uh, who under whom the Marines served, and the Secretary of the Navy never replied to the ACLU or to me or anything like that. But one day I got a a, a big another envelope in the mail, and, uh, and I opened it up, and it was. Honorable discharge. We figured, and I think rightly, that the that he did not want the New York Times, among others, to get a hold of that transcript and see that officer said, "Ask me, are you a Jew?" You know that 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 he absolutely did not want that in the public domain, and so he gave me an honorable discharge just like that. And I got the CI Bill of Rights, you know, and, the, and all the other rights uh, pertaining to privileges, pertaining to military service. And so I. Uh, and so at this point, it's what fifty-two that you're you're out now. Yeah, I'm fifty-two. Yeah, I'm out. I'm out late fifty-two. I think it was. And at this point, the blacklist has still got six years in it. Yeah, right? Oh yes. Oh yeah. It's, it's got a lot in it. A long time afterwards. But uh, but anyway, uh, I, I was I was out and I got an honorable discharge. In the meantime, it, while all of that was going on, when I, uh, I was discharged, I had a, I, I knew a, a, a man in, in Los Angeles I had met who was a communist, and uh, I was still very communist in my orientation, even though I was no longer a member of the party. I dropped out when I was drafted, you know, stopped paying dues and so forth. It isn't, it isn't that I was thrown out or anything like that, but I just dropped out. I was no longer a party member. Moreover, Taft-Hartley law had been passed, uh, which forbade union members from electing communists to office. And when I got to, you know, after I got a discharge, I, I, I spoke to this fellow I knew. I did help uh, to get a job of some kind. So he, he took me to see Slim Conley. Now, Slim Conley who was a San Francisco Irish, about, he was just short, I guess, of seven feet tall. He was really, 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 really tall. Was, uh, he had to make a decision when the Taft-Hartley law was passed. Either stay with, he was, head, he was head of the whole CIO in California. He was head of the whole shebang. And he had to make a choice. Either leave the party and stay with the union, or stay with the party and leave the union. So he stayed with the party and left the trade union, and he became the Los Angeles editor of the Daily People's World, which is the Communist Party's daily newspaper. Uh, there was a Northern California edition and a Southern California edition, and, um, and he became the editor of it. And so this, this fellow I knew in, in, in Los Angeles took me to see Sid Conway, and I told him the whole story and everything. And he and uh, he says, uh, 
Sid was married to another San Francisco Irish, Irish woman named Dorothy Healy, who was head of the Communist Party of Southern California. California basically was divided by the Tehachapi Pass, Northern California, Southern California. Right. And uh, so she was head of the party south of the, south of the Tehachapi Pass. And she, as she came up to Slim's, Slim's uh, belt buckle, she was very short. <laughs> and so, and it, there was led to a lot of rival speculation on the left in Los Angeles. <laughs> but anyway, uh, um, Slim said, yeah, right, you're going to see. So he turned to his desk, he wrote a note of some kind, put it in an envelope, sealed it, wrote a name on it, and I won't tell you the name on it, but anyway, it was someone way, way, way high up in the Longshoreman's Union. And he said, take this to this man, and he will help you. And so uh, I did, and in a couple of days I was, I was working uh, as a member of the ILWU. And I started getting very, very active in the union. Uh, Which was where other blacklisted people were concentrating. There were a lot of other blacklisted people, that's right, in the union, yeah. Writers and poets and, uh, and actors, and so I knew a bunch of these people uh, in the Union from from the purges that had gone on in Hollywood as a result of uh, the House on American Activities Committee having subpoenaed them and so on and so on. So anyway, I was, I, and I began to rise in the Union. I mean, I became quite, uh, I, was, I was really avid about, I, I, I had started out in life when I was, when I went to, St. Louis, I majored in economics. I had planned to become a labor economist and I planned to work for the trade union movement as an economist. I was going to get a PhD in labor economics. But in, so I always had this ambition of being, you know, helpful to the labor movement in some way. Well, I, I, I got myself elected shop steward and there I was a shop steward. I didn't know what the fuck to do. You know, there was no training or anything of that sort. So one of my first things I did was to get together with other shop stewards, and we, and we founded the Shop Stewards Council, uh, and uh, and uh, and set up a training program for for, for shop stewards. We we taught them a lot of labor law and various ways of behaving as a shop steward, how to handle a grievance and all of that sort of thing. We got we got all of that sort of thing. Anyway, I was beginning to rise in the labor movement. So I, I but I knew a lot of people who had, in the in the union who had, uh, who had who had been purged before. You know that big sign that says Hollywood on the side of the mountain there, and back of that mountain is a a, 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 a not a valley a, a canyons a canyon a canyon yeah. Uh, and all of those, uh, they had people living back there in that canyon. You had to have a five-acre spread, and that was to keep the canyon from becoming too crowded with people. So anyway, I knew some people uh, back there, and we used to go to parties and things back there. And the, the guy, the actor who played Grandpa in The Waltons, I wish I could remember his name, but he lived back up in there. And, and my wife and I used to go to parties at his house every Saturday night. And you'd come to the party and there'd be a hat by the door and you'd drop some money in it and, and he would make a contribution to some left-wing cause or other, different causes and different so on. So anyway, we'd, we'd go to Saturday night and we met an awful lot of Hollywood people. Um, and uh, 
and uh, this is where you met Mel Brooks and, and Bancroft. Not, Bancroft, not Brooks. Not Brooks. This is before. So anyway, Joanne was somehow talked into giving a speech at a left wing conference in Hollywood, and I can't remember exactly what it was all about or who or who the sponsors were or anything, but it was very far to the left, and Joanne was somehow hooked into giving the opening remarks. And, and, and Anne Bancroft was there as well. And that's how we met her. We got to know her. Well, I didn't get to know her so much. Joanne's, well, Joanne's friend than mine. So I began to move in circles, left-wing circles, you know, in, in, in Southern California around, as well as doing my union stuff, uh, other, other circles. And uh, we met lots of uh, uh, people who, uh, who were in a bad, bad you know, purge and so on, that sort of thing. So people who lost work during uh, during the blacklist, yeah. there was this referral system that you were able to tap into to get a certain kind of work. Yes. But um, what were the other what were the other options if people uh, I, I, didn't I, have a sort of like a connection into a CIO union that had still uh, had a relationship yeah. with the party? Well, a lot of them, uh, you know, their wives would get a job. Right. And, and they would um, not be able to get work. Either they were not able physically to do the work, you know, too old. Right. Or, 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 or something like that, but, or somehow were just not able to find a job. Uh, gradually, very, very gradually, a system began to develop where they could, uh, would be given scripts to write. But and, and uh, for movies, but under another another name, under false names, they were right under false names, and uh, and uh, uh, that system began to develop. And so the movie companies would be making movies with these writers whose names you never heard of, uh, and uh, so you know there are things like that, but. Uh, but it was it was hard on a lot of people. Hard on a lot of people. Very hard on a lot of people. So. So anyway, one night I picked up a copy of the Los Angeles Times, and there was a special section in it on on night school at UCLA. And I looked through it. I was getting a ha I was beginning to hanker about going back to school, you know, because I only had up to two years of university college and university at that time. And I began to hanker going back. And I was still thinking about being an economist. And I picked up the paper one night, for the whole section of the paper about night school at UCLA. And uh, most of them were things I didn't want to take, like labor, like uh, accounting and, uh, and various other business administration and so on and so on and so on. The only thing that looked any interest to me was uh, there was an introduction to philosophy course. I never had any philosophy in the two years of college and university I'd had before. Uh, I didn't really know much about it, uh, except Marxist philosophy, when I bought books on Marxist philosophy. When we lived in Los Angeles, we lived for a long time, catty corner across from the progressive bookstore. So I, uh, catty corner across the street, and I'd get, I would go in there and buy Marxist philosophy books, various other kinds of books. Uh, and uh, and so I thought I would sign up for that course, and I did. So I signed up for the UCLA Introduction to Philosophy course. 
and the textbooks were David Hume's Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, John Hosper, the first edition of John Hosper's Introduction to Philosophical Analysis, a textbook which became almost universally adopted, made him a multimillionaire, John Hosper's, uh, and uh, A.J. Ayer's Language, Truth, and Logic. Well, A.J. Ayer's was a young man's book. He was very young when he wrote it. He'd gone to, to uh, uh, Austria to study philosophy under the Austrian positivists in Vienna, and then went back to England and wrote Language, Truth, and Logic uh, in his early 20s. And it set me afire. I mean, it was so intellectually thrilling. It was thrilling and just set me afire. And I had found my place. I was going to go back to university, I was going to get a PhD in philosophy, and I was going to become a philosophy professor, which is what I did. Did you get all the degrees at UCLA? No, 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 no. But uh, that was my you know, right. plan to, to uh, in order to do, do that, we left Los Angeles. Uh, I was just too implicated with too many people and too many projects that would be so distracting. So I, the uh, union had a, a, a provision for uh, where you could go uh, traveling. You could take a union card from some union locally in Los Angeles and you could take it and you could go all the way up to Alaska on it Go and whenever you got to a place where there was the IWU, you know they had to honor it and see that you got work for a while. You know, and then before oh, you went on. Wow. See, that was left over from the old wobbly days. It was a wobbly practice. It was left over from the old wobbly days. So anyway, yeah, I got it. That's I, what they called the wobbly corridor. Yeah. So so uh, they do. Um, that's a, academics now refer to the stretch from Carson City to uh, Nelson as the Wobbly Corridor. Oh, I see. Well, this was all the way up the coast to Alaska. So anyway, I got a traveling card and, and, and I got to Los, to uh, we moved to San Francisco and we moved, the, uh, the day we arrived at San Francisco was the day that the Hungarian Revolution broke out in 1954. Uh, whatever date that was, that was when we arrived. Anyway, uh, I, I got this traveling card and, and, and eventually I was able to t turn it in, into an actual membership in, in, a, in a San Francisco local because I was known by the leadership of the local there for what I had, things I had done in Southern California. Right. So they gave me a membership in their local. So. I was no longer a traveling card. I was became a member, a, a actual member of the San Francisco. Okay. So, so San Francisco, the new Longshoremen's Union. Yeah, a new new local. Yes, yeah. that's right. And um, the thing is, our plan was that I would work in the summer. You see, because the wages were very good, and I could work in the summer, and we take care of most of our year's income, but not quite. So Joanne had to get a job. So Joanne decided she'd like to work for a law, a law firm. And so she would go to, she went to a law firm and she would work a week or so and they'd fire her. She'd go to another law firm and she'd work a week or so and they would fire her. And this happened several times. 
And so someone in one of the law firms uh, told her that the FBI had been in and got her fired. So that's, they were following her. Right, because she had an independent profile as a Marxist. Yes, that's right. And they were, they were, they were following her and getting her fired for all these jobs one after the other. So someone, I don't know who it was, someone we knew suggested that she look into uh, working uh, for the San Francisco Chronicle, a newspaper, in, 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 the, in, in the advertising department. Um, and she went, it was interviewed, and she was hired. The woman who ran the advertising department, was named, a woman named Alice something, I can't remember Alice's last name. She was Armenian, I believe, but she, uh, she hired Joanne. Uh, Harry Bridges' wife worked there. And so, uh, sure enough, the FBI came along and tried to, to tell Alice to fire, me, fire Joanne, and Alice, she quite literally, chased them out of the Chronicle building, waving a big stick, shout, <laughs> shouting at them, you know, that she would not allow them or anyone else to tell her who to hire and who not to hire. And she was, she, she, she was beating on these FBI people with this stick and chasing them out of the building. <laughs> and uh, and so Joanne had a secure job there, uh, and, and so we were set. So, so then I was able to go back to school and, and uh, and so on, and I worked in the summer uh, on the docks, on the docks. And you're at UC Berkeley at this point? Uh, first I went to San Francisco State and finished my, uh, there were two really great state universities in America at that time. One was San Francisco State University, or State College, which became a university, and Rutgers over in, in New, New Jersey, Rutgers University. Right. Those were the two top state university you know, uh, colleges, state college in the United States. Both of them were first rate. I mean, really good schools, and I got a first rate degree from from uh, a bachelor's degree from uh, from uh, SF State. Uh, yeah, SF State, and then I went over to Berkeley to, to do graduate work, uh, and that's a whole other story too. But uh, what was I say? Anyway, that's that's uh, that, that's part of the progression. We moved to San Francisco to a, a neighborhood. Uh, just uh, there's a great big uh, University of California hospital and medical school on a big mountain there in San Francisco, and at the bottom of that mountain there's this neighborhood. Well, we didn't know that anything about that, but we just happened when we came into San Francisco. That's where we stopped looked for an apartment and found one and we were living down there. It was quite a nice neighborhood, uh, working class, working class neighborhood. We had a very nice apartment, a very old-fashioned apartment, but one but was affordable. And, uh, and so that's the neighborhood we moved to. Uh, you met some interesting people. There was a, uh, there was a tobacconist shop where you could get tobacco, and, and he had a table, a couple of tables out in front where you could drink coffee and smoke your cigarette or whatever you bought, you know, mm -hmm. in the tobacco in the shop. And I met a couple of interesting people. 
one guy one day sat down there to have a cup of coffee and we fell to talking he he worked up at the in the hospital up in uh in uh on top of the mountain and one of his jobs was whenever there was an execution at San Quentin he would go over and and pick up the body and bring it up to the hospital for for uh right for uh dissection and so on people the guys going to be executed would sign a paper allowing allowing that so he would go pick up the bodies and take them up there that's just one of his jobs but the one that's most memorable for me was this young, not, not young though, but actually early, very early middle age, I would say, late 30s. I don't know if that's middle age or not. I, I, these days, demographers say, say middle age starts at 35. Yeah, well, she, anyway, she was, I would say. So she sat down uh, one day to talk to me, yeah, to smoke, rather, have a cigarette and smoke, have a cup of coffee, and we fell to talking. And, uh, she uh, was a uh, a nurse up in the hospital there uh, on top of the hill, and she told me her story, uh, which was uh, along the following lines. She, uh, when she was uh, quite a young lady, she uh, she got her nursing degree and got the job up in the hospital up there, and she looked around and. The hospital was full of young, good-looking Jewish doctors, which <laughs> she was attracted to. And so she decided that she was going to fuck all of the Jewish doctors up there. <laughs> and according to her, she did fuck some of them a number of times, but she was fucking all these Jewish doctors. And she said to me, I'm not Jewish by birth, and I'm not uh, Jewish by conversion, but I damn well am Jewish by injection. She was Jewish by injection. <laughs> so, so, this, so at this point, most of your life is is university life. It's not union life, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. At this point, yeah, I was I was I was in the union in St. Louis, uh, in uh, San Francisco, but I was I didn't I didn't wasn't really active in union affairs at all. I was using. I just worked on the waterfront there uh, in the summers. Mostly. Right. Because the pay was good, and, and if I worked every day, and you could work every day because summers when people took vacations, and so there was mm -hmm. a bit of a shortage, you see, and, and I was available every day. And so I was able to uh, work, uh, or well, five days a week anyway, I was able to work uh, because people were taking, taking, and one, that one, you know, one of the things that's happened sometimes, I, I would be seconded to the clerks union. So I would wander. I wouldn't have to do crawl down in the middle of ships and handle cargo and so on. I would just walk around with his tablets and writing stuff in these tablets on the waterfront. They're recording various things. Uh, that was good. You know, the pay was really good. And and uh, uh, for, for the, when I was seconded to the to the uh, 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 clerk's union, uh, clerk's local, and uh, that that was the best work because I didn't have to do any heavy work. When I was seconded to them, right. Um, anyway, otherwise I was crawling up and down in in in, in ships, handling cargo all the time, every day, uh, work day, and that was in the. Uh, it was starting in the uh, in, as I say, it started in '54 when I moved to 
San Francisco, and not too long after that, that's when the beach showed up, and North Beach began to really. It was it was the last last effervescence of uh, of, 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 of American Bohemia, right? And there was been no Bohemia since then, anywhere, not just in America, anywhere else in the world. Bohemia is dead. Yes. But it was the last flowering of American Bohemia. So if there's if some if by chance some one day there just didn't happen to be any work, well I would walk up from the waterfront to North Beach and spend my day with the beach, uh, in North Beach, uh, sitting in a coffee house and I met Ginsburg and all of that. Oh, interesting. What yeah. were um what were they like as like people to hang out with on a beach? Well, you didn't hang out with them too much because in fact. Uh, they were in their apartments working. I mean, they weren't layabouts or lazy or people that weren't working. They played in the evening, you know, and, and that's when you know, doing all kinds of things. But I mean, during the day, they were in their apartments working, producing poetry and or novels or whatever. They were uh, they were they were hard working actually. They just didn't hard work in an, in any kind of commercial job. You know, the City Lights bookstore opened up. Oh, God, what was the guy's name who ran it? Uh, oh, Larry, Larry Ferraghetti. Yeah, he, 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 he opened the City Lights books. I spent a lot of time there if, if I was in weekend, on weekends, but or if there was a day I wasn't working, I would go there at the time. He told me a very funny story. He had published uh, Ginsburg's book, Howl, in a certain format. Right. You know, there was this format of of poets and other, you know, not just not just Ginsburg but others in the same format and so forth. So he decided to put out a, a, a book of poetry of, oh shit, he was a Belgian poet who wrote in French and lived in Paris. Larry Ferragetti told me this very funny story. He decided, he, he, he liked the poems of Jacques Prévert and so he decided to publish a translation of them in English in his poetry series. And he did, he put them on the show, and suddenly, the, it, you know, there was such a run on People were coming in and buying it. They had to have reprint and reprint. People were buying them. They were just flying off the shelf. And he couldn't, he, he couldn't figure it out. I mean, this was not a poet who was well known in America. Uh, and they were in translation from the French. So these people couldn't have known of him most of them, at least in, in French, they could not figure out. He finally found out what was happening, why they were selling so fast. Gays were buying this these poems because they were all misreading the time. Right. As Jacques Pervert, poems by Jacques Pervert. And, they, and gays were buying them by the dozen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, hopefully some of them also enjoyed the poems. Well, I hope so. I hope because so. at least word didn't, you know, word didn't circulate too fast, and yeah. the book was a bit of a letdown. Yeah, that was really funny. I mean, he was just selling them like hotcakes, boy. <laughs> well, I think everybody won in that scenario, yes, right? Yes, I so. <laughs> Feeling Getty won, Clever won, <laughs> Literature won. And Jacques Pervert. Um, <laughs> So you basically went from being at the periphery of the Hollywood blacklist to adjacent to the beat scene in yes, that's San right. Francisco. Yes, that's right. It was a, a great time to be a young man in America, you know? Yeah. A really great time. I wouldn't have missed it for anything. 
Well, anyway, um, um, the beat the beat thing began to peter out and so forth. In the early, early, very early sixties, just petered out and ceased to be. And Joanne and I, uh, well, anyway, I had been studying for a doctorate in philosophy over in Berkeley. This is another story. It was a little bit complicated, but anyway, uh, there was a. a there was a, uh, a British philosopher named John Austin. And John Austin was lecturing at, in Berkeley, and I, I sat in on his class at Berkeley um, and took voluminous notes. And he taught this course. Jane Austen wrote Sense and Sensibility. He called this course Sense and Sensibilia, the sense mm. of things that are sensed. So sense and sensibilia. Clever. That is. Uh, anyway. It's good I, play. Yeah. So I, and I thought he had his, one of his main, the main things in, in, in his, in this course, he, he was, Austin was an absolutely ferocious son of a bitch in class. If you said something he didn't think was right, I mean, he would just chew you to pieces and spit you out. Outside of class, he was as affable and friendly and nice a guy as you could want. <laughs> when, when, when the when the California uh, forefathers uh, set up the University of California, they set it up so that there could be no uh, uh, alcohol sold within one mile of the university. I guess they thought that the students would get on their you know would get on their horses and they would try to go to a a bar someplace, a pub someplace, they would come to their senses and turn back. <laughs> I, I guess, but anyway, uh, there was this bar, uh, and I wish I could remember the name of it. It had a famous name, but it was just a, about an inch on the inside of, uh, of uh, Oakland, you know, away from the university. Right. And a lot of, uh, it was, at night it was a gay bar, a big roaring gay bar, but in the afternoon, a lot of university students and, and uh, Teachers would go there, and and, and when, when when we would go with Austin to that bar, uh, uh, he was as affable and nice and friendly and you know, as he could possibly be. And if you said something disagreed with, he didn't chew you to pieces and spit you out, like he did in class. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Austin uh, taught this course in Sensibilia, the, and the entire thrust of the course was a. a, a, a almost conceptually, philosophically violent attack on A.J. Ayer and language, truth, and logic. The thing that had set me right. afire to get into philosophy. And I thought he was wrong on a lot of things, but I didn't dare say so, you know. In any case, Austin returned to Oxford, where he usually taught, and, and he died. So his literary heirs of his, of his estate, he left a set of notes on, on uh, Sense and Sensibilia. Uh, he, he left a set of notes, but they were not enough. And so they wrote to the university to ask students if they had any fairly good sets of notes of his lectures, and some of us did, and made copies of them and sent them to them. And, and they put a book, uh, uh, they put a book together based on Austin's notes and various notes from various 
uh, people in the in, in in Berkeley, and they published a book called Sins and Sensibilia, and it was a uh, a really uh, uh, vigorous attack on on air. Well, I thought it was wrong. I thought it was mistaken. I thought air, I thought air could be defended on many of these issues very easily. And so I, I, I resolved to uh, write my doctoral thesis on Austin. And in fact, I wrote the first doctoral thesis uh, on John Austin. Um, mm. There were numerous others afterwards, but I wrote the very first. Uh, it was a, a vigorous defense of air, of air and of sensitive theory and of phenomenalism, which is a movement in epistemology and so on. Well, Berkeley was notorious, absolutely notorious for its abuse of graduate students. I mean, really, really, really abusive. And drove them out of the department by the dozen. Before you can get your doctorate and even start writing your thesis, there's a number of qualifying exams you need to write. Right. There's one in logic, one in the history of philosophy, uh, you know, one in epistemology, uh, and so on and so on. Uh, and you you had three chances. You could if you flunked one, uh, you could take it again the next year. Uh, so anyway, uh, a bunch of us uh, took the grad, took the uh, took the exams, and um, and all of us that took the exam in logic flunked. We had been told to. We, we were given textbooks in logic to study this, the exam would be based on this, on this logic textbook, and all of us studied it. Well, a new guy, Craig, famous logician named Craig, came to the uh, university and the department assigned him to give the uh, PhD logic exam. And all of us failed because there were, uh, there were problems set in symbols which none of us had ever seen before, so couldn't even read, but understand, much less solve the problems. Uh, and uh, so we flunked and, and we protested because we had all studied the book that they had told us to study, and I knew damn well that I could pass that test. Um, uh, if you had just been able to study symbolic logic. Yeah, well I did study symbolic logic, but not the symbolic logic textbook that uh, that Craig, not textbook, but that Craig had sent the exam on. So we couldn't even read the things. And so I got very angry, very, very angry. Uh, and I, 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 so I plugged the logic text along with everybody else. All of us, because we had three chances, would pick at least one exam that we would just deliberately fail in, not study for or anything, uh, because we could do it again the next year. So everybody did that. And, and I decided I would not, the one I would fail would be the ethics exam. So I took the ethics exam and I wrote these essays on the ethics exam. Lo and behold, I was the only one to pass the ethics exam. By not studying for it. Not, I didn't study for it at all. And they, they, <coughs> they praised my uh, essay on uh, David Hume on is and ought and trying to derive an ought from an is, you know. Uh, I, 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 and I, they gave me special praise for it, I passed. So, but I plugged the logic exam, 
the history of philosophy, which I do very, very well. The reason I knew the history of philosophy was this. Uh, one year I, I came into the department in September and I was told to go immediately to Professor somebody, I, I can't remember his name now, big, big, big man on campus anyway, who was the historian. But he was always being called upon by the administration of the university to do special important tasks and so on. So he, he called me in. I'd never even met him before. Hadn't had his class or anything like that. And he said, and he, when I got into his office, he presented me with a set of lecture notes. And he says, you're going to teach my history of philosophy class this year. Here. <laughs> and just gave me this set of lecture notes. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, there were mar marginalia says, tell such and such a joke here. <laughs> and anyway, lecture on history. So I, that year was practically a waste as far as studying is concerned because I had to give everything I had to that history of philosophy course, you know, and I couldn't let him down and I couldn't let myself down. So I really poured into that, my, my work into that, into that history of philosophy class, and, uh, which I taught that year. You'd, you'd passed ethics, you'd passed history. You'd no, I didn't logic. pass history. Oh, really? No, and I didn't pass history but the, the, because the, one of the questions was, what is phenomenalism? And the guy who set the question was a guy named Aschenbrenner, Professor Aschenbrenner. And I wrote a, what I knew was a really first-class essay on phenomenalism. I was up on it, I knew it, uh, and I wrote a, I know, a first-class essay. But I failed to mention in passing Kant, who had a, uh, a, a kind of special form of phenomenalism. His Critique of Pure Reasons was a kind of a special form. I wrote about 20th century phenomenalism, which was the phenomenalism of A.J. Ayer and other various people and so on. I was flunk because I, simply because I didn't make any remarks at all on Kant, which, I was out, which absolutely outraged me. Okay, if I'd been asked to write on Kant's phenomenalism, I would have. Mm -hmm. But I was just giving, it was wide open, you know, it was wide open, and I, and I didn't want to write a history of phenomenalism. I wrote a, did a philosophical analysis of, in my essay on phenomenalism. And I was so outraged by that. I was, I was outraged by the failure of the logic, and I was furious at being flunked in the history of philosophy. So I, uh, at that point, uh, and they, they, they wouldn't, they, they wouldn't listen to you. They would, you know, no, you like, So I quit. I left. I left Berkeley, and I went back to St. Louis, to my original school, which had a very good philosophy department. And it was a feeder school for uh, a lot of Midwestern universities and Southern universities. They provided philosophy professors for. The Midwest and the South. There was a, a, a young teacher there um, who was interested in Austin and sensibility and so on. And I was going to write my thesis on John Austin with him. I, I, I did. I started in on it and I was doing very well. He got a job offer at UBC. He was a Canadian mm. and he, he got a job offer at UBC. So I. And there was no one else there I could write that thesis with because uh, there was no one else who knew this stuff as well as I did, uh, you know. So uh, it was either follow him up here and finish it up here or, uh, or 
write an entirely new thesis. So Joanne and I went back to, Joanne was still in California, I went back to California, and we came in 1963 up here, and I finished the doctoral thesis up here under him, and, uh, and uh, I got a few publications out of it as well, but uh, I finished it up here because I wasn't about to just throw everything over and pick up a new, a new topic altogether. So that's how I ride. That's that. That's how I. This is this is what dumped you into this town. Uh, yeah, fifty nine so, years ago. Yeah, so we planned to stay a two or three years, maybe, and and then go back to the states somewhere. Uh, but we liked it so much. It was so good up here that there was no going back. I, I had absolutely no desire, whatever, to go back to that country. Yeah, and this is right. You arrived just as uh, Pearson's replacing Diefenbaker and the Canadian welfare yes. state and yes. a whole new social contracts yes. coming into being. Yes, that's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. So that's how I ended up here. I was after I got my degree, uh, got my PhD. I, I was teaching at UBC. I was making twelve thousand dollars a year, and uh, Simon Fraser opened up, and they offered me fifteen thousand. I thought I was going to be rich. So I, uh, I went over to Simon Fraser and uh, stayed there the rest of my life. And that, that was a decent wage in 1965. Huh? That was a decent wage in 1965. It, yes, it was. It was. 15000 Well, it helped. It enabled us to buy a nice house in, Bur in uh, Burnaby. And we, by then we had two kids, a baby and a, and a, and a three-year-old boy and a baby. And it enabled us to buy a very nice place in Burnaby. Um, and, uh, and we had a nice neighborhood where the kids could run around and play in the neighborhood and so on and so on. That was the end of the November 2nd recording of my interview with Don Todd. Uh, coming up in part three, Don's academic career in Canada following his arrival in uh, the spring of 1963. This has been another episode of Cocktail Hour with Stuart Parker. If you're interested in following my other work, please check out my blog at stuartparker.ca or my institute, Los Altos, at losaltos.ca. Los Altos also maintains an audio archive of the courses we have taught here on Anchor. Finally, if you're interested in supporting the work that I'm doing here, consider visiting my page on Patreon and making a monthly contribution to support independent critical thought. 